0: I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll also be looking at a few verses from Matthew chapter 5, that portion portion of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus speaks of the seventh commandment. So Exodus 20 and then Matthew chapter 5. Before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our God, we give You thanks for the truth for the beauty, for the clarity of your law. We thank you for the redeeming work of our Savior who renews hardened hearts, gives to us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonder of the gospel and hearts that long to walk in obedience to the beauty of that law. And pray as we study the seventh commandment this evening, that it would stir within us renewed zeal for holiness of life, purity of mind and heart, um, that we would be ever amazed at the redeeming work of our Savior, the one who in His life fulfills to the full extent of the law of the Lord on our behalf. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. In Exodus 20... Verses one and two, read, "And God spoke all these words, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." Verse 14, "You shall not commit adultery." And then to Matthew chapter five, verse 27 You have heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. the Word of our God, you may be seated. As we move along in our work through the book of Exodus and our studies of the Ten Commandments, we come to, of course, the Seventh Commandment this evening, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, you might remember that when we looked at the Sixth Commandment, we saw that in the original it is simply two words translated, no murder. Similarly, we find two words here in the original of the Seventh Commandments, no adultery. But just as that word murder, as we considered last time, was a very loaded word with great breadth of context and great depth of application, it exposes our own hearts which are full of anger, envy, animosity, and more. There is similar breadth and depth here with this commandment against adultery because, of course, we're not just talking about what is forbidden in the area of sexual activity but what is prescribed in terms of marital faithfulness, purity of hearts, holiness of life, and ultimately covenant fidelity to the Lord God. In talking about the second table of the law, you'll remember that's the fifth through the 10th commandments, Joel Beakey writes, the simplicity of these precepts conceals a marvelous depth of instruction. For in them the Lord asserts His lordship over every aspect of human activity, authority, life, sexuality, property, truth in communication, and desire. And so what we're learning in our study of God's law is that the law of the Lord governs all of life, every aspect of our being, every part of who we are. And we are to see the authority of God and His lordship over the life of the believer as a most blessed and wonderful thing that we delight in. It almost goes without saying that the world around us hates the God whom we love. A fallen man utterly disdains the authority of God. The world despises the exclusive claims of the gospel. And the Christian is belittled, mocked and ridiculed for holding to the perpetuity that is the binding nature of God's law. And this hatred toward God and toward His design is, I think, most evident in the radical sexual revolution of our time, in which this commandment in particular is under most heinous attack. We live in an age, you see, in which sex is equated with our core identity, and sexual expression is individual expression an individual expression, we are told, is the highest virtue of all that must be protected and promoted at any cost. Carl Truman, in his excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, writes, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. And so, you'll hear this refrain frequently in the world around. I must be true to myself, I must be authentic to my nature, that is, my self-appointed sexual identity, and everyone else must affirm me in that self-identity and sexual expression. To refuse to do so is hateful and is intolerant. And so, with all of the confusion of the world around, with with all of the disdain that the world has toward God's design, I think we have to ask, why do we at some level in our mind and hearts, care what the world thinks of us? Why are we allowing the very vocal opinions of the world around to have such influence upon us, especially in this area of sexuality? And I hope that by reflecting upon the breadth and depth of this particular commandment, we come to a greater awareness of how the law of the Lord ought to be applied to our lives, so that we're growing both in awareness of the various areas of temptation in this particular area of life, but also growing in discernment about the ways in which the world has influenced our thinking. And so, let's think first tonight about the foundational nature of the seventh commandment. So, this is our first point tonight, the basis or the reason for the seventh commandment. Let's remember that the reason for the sixth commandment is grounded in the goodness of God's creation, the fact that He has created mankind in His image. And so, that is the reason for the preservation of life in the sixth commandment. the reason for the seventh commandment is likewise grounded in the goodness of God's creation, that He has created us male and female, and He has instituted in the garden before sin came into the world that good marriage relationship, the covenant of marriage, and prescribe sexual intimacy for the marriage relationship. And sin, of course, has marred the marriage relationship, but Christ-centered, God-honoring marriages are vital for life within the home, critical for the local church, indispensable for the betterment of society. And so, the disdain toward marriage that we see around us and the erosion of society are truly intertwined because as one goes, so goes the other. And while marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage are two of God's greatest gifts, the evil one hates the good things of God. And so, we see more and more in our society that there is no end to the way in which fallen, sinful human hearts seek to distort the good gifts of God. And so, one of the most important things that we can do within the local church is to encourage our young people to marry only in the Lord. One of the things that I truly enjoy, one of the greatest privileges in pastoral ministry is meeting with young couples as they prepare for marriage, to talk together about things of the Lord in His purpose and design for the marriage relationship, to think through the mutual calling of husband and wife and their individual callings that are before them from the Word of God, to commit themselves to cultivating and maturing those responsibilities and callings that are before them that their marriage would be one that lasts lifelong as God has intended. And of course, no marriage is without its various challenges and trials, but as we are committed to the fact that the Lord is with us, then we grow to see that marriage is really a tool toward a progressive sanctification. Marriage, I think more than any other earthly relationship, has a way of exposing your sinful, selfish hearts and showing you how much you need the redeeming work of Jesus. There's a lot of great resources that are written on marriage. One that I use frequently in premarital counseling is a book entitled Living in a Godly Marriage, co-authored by Joel Beakey and James LaBelle. If you still have children within the home, Chapter 3 of that book is well worth the purchase price from the little bookstore. So, Vicki may want to add a few more to add to our inventory. But among other things, what Beeky and LaBelle point out is that marriage is under attack, both from without and from within. Now, by saying that marriage is on attack from within, they point out that our hearts are rebellious against God. We don't like the law of the Lord. And so, we push back against that which is clear in His instruction. There are many who want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Many want the gratification of their desires without the responsibility of marriage. And so, they elevate their own opinions to just do what seems right in their own eyes, even twisting the Word of God to make it seem as though the purpose of marriage is their own happiness. Now, it's bad enough that there is this battle within the human heart, but by saying that marriage is under attack from without, of course, we see again a culture which is filled with divorce, apps that are created to hook up with complete strangers and no strings attached, pornography that is rampant, the ideology of homosexuality and transgenderism that is pushed upon young children as an acceptable lifestyle choice and other twisted and perverse things that ought not even to be mentioned. Truly, some of the most wicked manifestations of the human heart are seen in this area of sexuality. But instead, we can have confidence that God is the one who has created marriage, and He alone has the right to instruct us on the marriage relationship. And of course, He has done just that in His Word. Beeky and LaBelle write, In God's Word, He tells us how to think about marriage, how to prepare for marriage, upon what foundation to build a godly marriage, the duties to which marriage obligates us, and how properly to perform them, what struggles to expect in marriage and how to address them, and how to persevere even in a difficult marriage. All of this is contained in the Word of God. Truly, God's Word is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so here, I think, are some questions that we ought to ask ourselves as we think about this attack of marriage, both within and without. Where are we perhaps relying upon our own intuition in our marriages and what just seems or sounds or feels right to us? perhaps functioning in our marriage according to that which is just right in our own eyes, making the pursuit of our own happiness the goal and objective of our marriage relationship. And if that's true, then we feel justified in our response of coldness or indifference toward our spouse when they don't fulfill our desire toward happiness. And the parents who are here and Please receive this with the pastoral warmth with which this is intended, drawing upon 20-plus years of working with youth and families. Where might you, even unwittingly, promote a false view of what the marriage relationship is all about? As your sons begin pursuing young women or as your daughters are pursued by young men, are you setting them up for heartache, for failure, even for disobedience to God by allowing them to be involved in a relationship with one who does not profess love for the Lord. By saying things to yourself like, well, I just want them to be happy. This might be their only opportunity for a relationship. I don't want them to be lonely. You don't want them to be the only one in their peer group without a boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't want them to be that odd one out. Or perhaps there's just failure to correct false thinking in your son or daughter's mind as they are embracing the values and priorities of the world. Are you pressing them, you see, gently, warmly at various stages of life to live for the glory of God above all things? Or are you okay with little bits of compromise in this particular area because, frankly, they're a little easier to live with? now that they have that boyfriend or girlfriend in their life. You see, if sexual identity is one's identity, then that means, according to the world's values, that someone is not whole unless they are expressing their sexual identity. And if our sons or daughters don't enter into a relationship at the right time, then we might be fearful that there's something wrong with them. And this is where we may slowly approve of a relationship that is clearly contrary to the Word of God. Well, there's much more, of course, that could be said about the goodness of marriage, about the calling that is before husbands and wives, about how we can encourage our young men and women to be future faithful husbands and godly wives while helping our children and young people to learn to be content in times of singleness. But of course, that's not all that's being addressed here in the Seventh Commandment. And so, let's think secondly tonight, what are among the things that are required and forbidden in the Seventh Commandment? What are the requirements and what are the restrictions of the Seventh Commandment? So, let's remember as we think about applying the law of the Lord, We want to be thinking about those things that are not only forbidden in the law, but what the law requires of me. What are among my responsibilities as a child of God? This is where our own larger catechism in question and answers 138 and 139 can be of great help to us. We read there that this commandment calls for chastity within our own lives and in the lives of our neighbors Now, by chastity, we're thinking not only of refraining from sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship, but we're also speaking of purity in our own life, while also seeking to guard the integrity and purity of one another. And so, whether married or single, our body is not our own to do with as we please, but our body belongs to the Lord God, and we are to serve and honor Him with the use of our bodies. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, "'Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body.'" And throughout the Word of the Lord, we learn about the particularly destructive and heinous nature of sexual sin. There's something about sexual sin because of the nature of its intended intimacy within marriage that when it is abused, it is particularly destructive and pervasively destructive in someone's life. Puritan Thomas Watson helps us here by pointing out that adultery and sexual sin is a breach of the covenant bond of marriage. It is a breach of that oath that husband and wife take before one another, an oath that they take in the presence of family and friends, but most importantly, an oath that they take before the living God. It is a sin that is of great dishonor to God. It is both contrary to His command. It is an affront against His loving providence, delighting yourself in a spouse that God has given to you. It is a deliberate and willful sin in which adds to its heinous nature more than others. It is, as Watson says, the highest form of theft. God has given to you a spouse already whom you are called to love. It pollutes the heart. It destroys the body. It destroys and ruins one's reputation. It impairs the mind and corrupts the entire self. It is abhorred by God and is something that can destroy the family. This is why the Apostle Paul says, flee, flee from such things. You might recall Joseph who does not sit around and try to reason with the seductive advances of Potiphar's wife but flees from her grasp, even leaving his cloak in her hands. But this call toward chastity or purity is not just with the outer man, but we are charged to pursue purity within within the mind and heart. Jesus makes that clear in that passage that we read from Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And so while our bodies are to be presented to God, Romans chapter 12, We are to be transformed in the renewing of our minds, seeking to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so, with words, behavior, affections, and thoughts, in all of this we are to learn more and more to be thinking God's thoughts after Him, while seeking to put aside thoughts and desires that are impure, full of lust and self-interest. Sexual intimacy within the marriage relationship is a wonderful thing that is intended to nurture oneness, love, care, and self-sacrifice between husband and wife. But when abused by taking it out of its God-ordained context, it brings only destruction. You've heard the analogy before probably of a fire within a fireplace. Kept within its intended space That fire provides warmth and beauty and comfort, but if you bring it out by distorting its intent, it can destroy everything in its path. And that is an image, you see, of the power and the potency of intimacy within marriage. Ephesians 5 verse 3 reads that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ our God. You remember how Martin Luther put it, that I can't stop the birds from flying around my head, but I can keep them from pecking at my nose and making a nest in my hair. So when Jesus in Matthew 5 speaks about gouging out the eye or cutting off of the hand, this is a way to speak of the urgency of addressing this particular sin in our lives because of the consequences and how significant they are. John Owen very memorably wrote that we ought to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And I think that's no more particularly true as it is here in relation to the seventh commandment. Of course, we get absolutely no help from the world around and our desire to pursue holiness of life and purity of mind and heart. With a constant bombardment of explicit images, of flippant words toward things that should not be spoken of in public, we can find our minds dwelling upon wicked things, and at times it may feel as though growth and maturity in this area of life for the believer is so slow we begin to wonder if we're making progress in the Christian life at all. John Calvin, in the little book on the Christian life, a book that a number of the men here in the church are reading through together, has some very encouraging words as he writes, Most of us are so oppressed with weakness that it seems as though we make little progress, staggering, limping, and crawling on the ground. But none of us will move forward with so little success that we will not make some daily progress in the way. Therefore, let us keep striving so that we might continually make some gains in the way of the Lord. And neither let us despair over how small our successes are for however much our successes fall short of our desire, our efforts are not in vain when we are farther along today than yesterday. And so we are to look not to our own strength, of course, but we are to look to the faithful, tender, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to help us learn to think upon that which is true and right and noble and excellent, pure and praiseworthy, Philippians 4, eight. And of course, the only thing that meets that criteria is the Word of God. And so we need in our lives more and more to be students of the Word, reading Scripture, drawing upon it, thinking of those promises and instruction from the Word of the Lord. The Puritan William Gurnall writes, you can compare the study of God's Word… And the mere reading of it by thinking of the difference between a close friendship and a casual acquaintance. If you want genuine knowledge, you'll have to do more than greet the word politely on Sundays or nod reverently when you chance to meet it on the street. You must walk with it and talk with it every day of the week. You must invite it into your private chambers and forego other pleasures and worldly duties to spend time in its company. And so, the more that we are in the Word, the more we will be drawing upon the Word and thinking upon the Word. And so, there is to be chastity or purity of self and neighbor both within mind and heart and outwardly in behavior and words. We could add to the requirements of this commandment, I think, we could add watchfulness and perseverance, vigilance. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so, we need watchfulness over the condition of our hearts. I remember reading a number of years ago about the routine of an Olympic athlete who ran track and field and how disciplined she was not only when she was on the track or in the gym actively preparing, but how her entire life was regimented from her sleep schedule to her leisure time. Everything in her life was sort of secondary to this primary goal of being able to compete at the highest level possible. But it wasn't just about the physical discipline per se… But she spoke about the importance of keeping her mind and will focused, cutting off friends, even childhood friends, who would seek to distract her or use her for her popularity, staying away from certain settings that might tempt her to compromise. And the Apostle Paul, of course, uses that same metaphor in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that we are to persevere, we are to be disciplined and self-controlled because of that hope that lies ahead for us in Christ Jesus. And Paul's point there is that if an athlete is that disciplined and watchful for an earthly crown that will fade, then how much more should the people of God be watchful, be alert, and be careful about the things that we allow to pass before our eyes and the conversations that we engage in, and the priorities that we set our affections upon. And here are some areas of life for us to be watchful over. Consider your friends. Are your friends helping you to pursue godliness, or are they hindering you in your zeal for the Lord? I think of the need for mental awareness What are the things in your life that tempt you toward idleness and laziness in which you are more vulnerable, more susceptible in those moments toward sexual sin? Is there modesty in your attire and how you carry yourself? For young women, do you thrive upon the attention of others looking at you and desiring you, or are you mindful of the charge from 1 Peter 3 to pursue that inward adorning of the heart? in a gentle and quiet spirit. For young men, are you preparing yourself to be faithful husbands, godly servants, mature leaders in the church, or are you preoccupied with the vain pursuits of this world, the physical appearance, self-indulgence, the superficial, distracting things of this life? So, you think of it like this… If you are not married first to Christ, then you are in no position to be a godly husband or wife. And so, watchfulness and vigilance is something that should permeate our lives. And why? Because we are in a battle for our very souls. But again, we are not left to our own skill or strength, but we have the infinitely powerful God who is with us And it was in us through the Spirit of Christ to help us walk according to that calling. Again, Gurnall writes, In the army of saints, the strength of the whole host lies in the Lord of hosts. God can overcome His enemies without help from anyone, but His saints cannot so much as defend the smallest outpost without His strong arm. You may doubt your own strength, to have victory over sexual sin or to have consistency in your life in this particular area. And frankly, you should doubt your own strength, but never doubt the strength of Christ, the Christ who is for you, the Christ who is with you, and the Christ who has sent the spirits to dwell within you. The evil one hates you. Satan accuses you and He loves to plague your conscience and tempt you, but live by the promises of God. God loves you. God pardons you in Christ Jesus, and God takes care of you. And I hope in our study through this portion of the Word of God, familiar as it is to us, as you think about the law, you're beginning to See that because of the living and active nature of God's Word, there are so many ways that even a single commandment of the Lord ought to be applied to our lives. But you see, while every commandment exposes areas of weakness, areas of immaturity, even areas of rebellion against our Savior that we need to repent of, each commandment also shows us the wonder and the majesty and the splendor of our perfect Savior who kept the law in its entirety. The only way that we could be made right with a living God is through personal, perpetual, perfect obedience at every point of the law. And we have such a substitute in Christ Jesus. He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. He lived in a world that was just like ours, full of sexual perversion, and wickedness, and yet He was always loving, full of purity and holiness of life, zeal for the will of His heavenly Father, tender and patient and forgiving toward others who had engaged in sexual sin, offering words of comfort and peace and cleansing to those who may have been victims of sexual sin." And He died for such wicked sins as ours that deserve judgment, for our defilements and lustful hearts. There is hope of forgiveness, even for the adulterer who humbles himself before the Lord of glory. There is cleansing through the shed blood of Christ to the one whose conscience continues to plague him or her from past sexual sin. And there is healing for the one who has been sinned against in this area, for our Savior knows what it is to be abandoned by those who claim to love Him to the very end. And to the one who seems trapped in patterns of sexual sin, there is hope of lasting change. And the calling for us is the same as it is for the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, you are not condemned. Go and sin no more. Know the cleansing power of Christ and know the strength of His healing arm, and now walk in newness of life, for this is not you any longer. Such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God so, our charge as God's redeemed children is to live with an active anticipation of His imminent return. Just as we heard this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, live each day with the reality of Christ's coming. One theologian has written, Christ's return is not only a comfort to us in the midst of trial and hardship, but His return is also an incentive. The anticipation of our Savior's return makes us both watchful and industrious, makes us obedient and joyful as we wait for that most blessed day when we will see Him and be made like Him, for we shall see Him as He is.